The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and this is the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly ramble through the hills and through the hills of films big and small in cinemas and on streaming. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and co-hosting with me today is Matthew Taylor. Hello. And joining us in the studio today for a hearty mix of gritty action films, rom-coms, and a few choice words are our own elite gang of professionals with, in no particular order, Nicholas Menzies Kitchen. Hello. Uh, Stuart Pask. Hello. And Luke Irwin. Hello. Kicking off another jam-packed show, we have the sequel to the star-studded interstellar sci-fi fantasy epic Dune Part 2. It just wouldn't be the Cambridge Film Show without a straight-to-streaming rom-com, this time in the form of Five Blind Dates. Orlando Bloom defends the homestead in action or red right hand. Can director Vim Vendors deliver another masterclass in Perfect Days? We've got more than one sci-fi Part 2 with a follow-up to Netflix's Code 8 starring the Amel Brothers. Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley play a pair of cunning linguists in Wicked Little Letters. Uh, while it seems um, while it seems like uh, the perfect setup for a comedy, Adam Sandler goes to space and drama. Spaceman, Aaron Eckhart returns to leading form in uh, action thriller The Bricklayer, and does Tyler Perry make a faux pas with crime drama Mia Culpa? All will be revealed. So let's take a whiff of some spice and travel to the distant planet of Arrakis. This world is beyond cruelty. You've been fighting the Harkonnens for decades. My family's been fighting them for centuries. They were massacred. Alongside my father. My father didn't believe in revenge. We believe in Fremen. Let me fight beside you. Reload! He said that. I got that. Thanks. I won't be fighting for him. I'm fighting for my people. You young pop. Visionary director Denis Villeneuve brings us a second installment in his adaptation of Frank Herbert's much-lauded novel, Dune. The stakes are raised as the Emperor of the Universe casts his glance at the uprising taking place on the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune, where an outcast prince, played by Timothée Chalamet, is causing a supply chain crisis that threatens the stability of the galaxy. Nick, I believe you're somewhat familiar with the book. Uh, how does this kind of hold up? Well, I, I have read the book, um, and it wasn't a book, actually. I, it was a book that I, I was, I remember I said, you've got to read June. It's the best sci-fi novel ever ever written. Um, and I read it, and I was a bit nonplussed by it, to be honest with you. I thought it was a blizzard of characters that didn't particularly go anywhere. However, its influences were clear and writ large, and it's an, a, a major work, an important sci-fi um, work, and for someone to take it on, it needs to be done properly. And there was a 1984 version, which um, which was quite good fun. I think it was David Lynch, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. And uh, um, and it was quite good. It divided critics. It's become a bit of a cult classic. Villeneuve took on the reins uh, a few years ago and said he wanted to make a trilogy, um, and which he has made one already and was well, very well received, but kind of did divide people a little bit. And now he's come up with a second second instalment. The book this. Uh, the first two divide the first the book the first book into um, into these two films. So this the the, the films is an adaptation of the of book one, um, and we pick up here where after there's been an uprising and and Charlemagne's been outcast into the desert, um, and 
it is a bonkers story with a blizzard of characters that will not be for everyone because if you don't buy into the premise of what Dune is about, you will struggle with this film and you'll think, what the heck is all these nonsense and these silly hats and these people wandering around the desert talking gobbledygook. However, if you do buy into the premise of the story, and to my surprise, I did, um, I think it's an absolutely remarkable film, a proper piece of, of, of cinema. And Villeneuve, you will not see a better adaptation of proper epic sci-fi. Villeneuve has taken his vision and brought it to the big screen. It covers environment, religion, the corruption of power. It speaks to fascism, romance, imperialism and resistance, even sadomasochism. I can never say <laughs> machismism or whatever it is. Yeah. I can never say that word. Um, and it's a deeply human film. It speaks, as I say, about the corruption of power. Um, and it, 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 I think Villeneuve has realised his vision of uh, a grandiose, deeply human testament to a particularly cruel political future state. And I think it has a lot to say on that. Its influence on sci-fi and fantasy can't be underestimated from Game of Thrones to Star Wars, and I'm sure many people are aware of that. So when you do a film like this, you have to get it right. And boy, oh boy, is it cinematic. The, 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 the sound throbs through the film almost like a heartbeat. Um, I did meet an old lady coming out of the cinema who said it was too loud, bless her heart. Um, and she told me her favourite film of the year, by the way, Matt, was Beekeeper. Oh. So, uh, uh, so she was clearly... Um, uh, clearly got good taste. Very good taste, indeed. But, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a, a fantastic adaptation of the book. You won't see better. It is, if I had one criticism, it's 330 minutes long, if you can consider that really the two films are one film. And sure, it is a, in that respect, it is a, 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 too long. And the ending... Um, doesn't really resolve in the way that you'd expect <laughs> after 330 minutes because they're clearly, even though I, I did check this morning, I, I don't know if it's been green lit, but I'll bet my hat that it will be. Villeneuve signed up for, for June 3, as has um, Charlemagne. Um, and so you can bet your bottom dollar there will be a June 3. And, the, and the, the, the film, without giving too much away, does definitely leave that possibility wide, wide open. And you may have, could have expected perhaps a little bit more resolution at the end of, after 330 minutes. That said... I loved it, and if go to the cinema and watch this film because it deserves to be seen on the big screen. But others may differ. Uh, Luke, okay, Nick, Nick's kind of touched on something that I didn't, I didn't like about the first one, where is that there's no character, there's no character resolutions, there's no plot resolutions. It effectively just has a whimsical line cut to black. Um, something else I was disappointed by was the kind of grey color tone of taking a universe that's so full of color in the book and kind of making it kind of grayscale. Um, how did you feel? What, do, you think, do you think this is both a good resolution to the first film and aesthetically pleasing on the big screen? I think this film is much like the first film, both good and bad. I think Nick, Nick's, so, you know, his review covered a lot of different things and this is a film that really covers a lot. There is lots of characters, lots of themes, lots of visual storytelling going on. Um, and I think that's a, that's sort of a good place for, to, to get into, is the, the visuals. This is a, a brighter film than the first film. We're set mostly on Arrakis, which is the, the sand planet, which it took a very long time to get to in the first June, given that the film was called June. Yes. We get a, you know, a lot of really lovely visuals of the desert. Um, Villeneuve's always had this ability to really capture a sense of place and make it feel real. And I think it's much easier to do that 
in June part two where we have a lot of people covered in shawls and with their, their faces covered up. Yes. And they're wearing these long robes. It feels like a really lived-in world. Um, but we do get a lot of that sense that we got in the first film of a lot of drabness. We got these, I don't know what race of people there were. I really, I'm not, I'm not into this world so much. Like I, I was really, really trying to get along with it. But we got these sort of bone white people are all white. I don't know what's going on there. Um, like, and it's a lot of drabness there. Um, but is that is that purposeful? Because I think that culture oh. is supposed to be a bit more kind of sparse and fascist. Oh yeah, yeah, very very much so by design. Um, so we do get a range of imagery going on, which makes it feel like there's a there's a whole rich galaxy or universe or whatever it is in June. I think a lot of the flaws in the film though were both inherent in that as well about how much there is going on. We. Mm. Um, Nick touched on the, the thing that I really disliked about this film is that we don't really we're two three hour films into this <laughs> and it's like and now we're just beginning <laughs> and my heart sank it's like I don't quite understand why this film is divided like this given that it didn't feel like this film had a beginning middle and end it felt like we picked up and then we kept going and then the film kind of just ended because we've hit three hours <laughs> and it really did feel like three hours. A couple of other things I wanted to point because this isn't isn't purely a visual film. There's, I think, a lot for the cast to do here. Mm -hmm. um, Timothée Chalamet, I think, is a really strong performance from him. It's a really more, far more complex role for him, sort of playing this reluctant messiah although obviously every <laughs> quite a step up from his usual yeah, yeah. Every, every time he says you know i'm not the messiah you know we, we can all <laughs> we can all hear the line in our head we don't we don't even say it out loud um but that's it was a really complex role for him and i really loved uh javier bardem who has sort of a cameo at the end of the last film as of the the guy who believes in this this prophets still coming mm. yeah yeah and you know every time you know Timothée Chalamet does something it's like oh just as the prophet foretold <laughs> and it's a it's a, one of the few moments of levity in the film mm. and it's it's really wonderful um Austin Butler um who people will know as Elvis is anything but Elvis in this film he's one of the he's one of the white I guys I think many people would be happy to hear that oh like yeah definitely he was he was a real piece of work um <laughs> in this film um as you know you'll notice that we've not mentioned any of the female roles in this film so zendaya got a really big build up in the first film and she doesn't really have much to do beyond the first act she becomes sort of like the messiah's girlfriend and it's a really insubstantial role and we've got florence Pugh as christopher walken's daughter sort of Tripsing around delivering exposition. Well, I think, I think, I think, yeah, that's that is a criticism of the book, whether or not it's deliberate or not. How how much influence the female characters have? Yeah, um, I mean, that is that's, no, that's a problem in the book. There isn't enough um, strong female characterization. Or, well, or, or is that others have argued that the Ben Gesserat, which they are the, the female class that are. Um, pulling the strings and manipulating behind the scenes, they're the, they're the um, political Machiavellis yeah. behind the behind the scenes. The, the film 
I, and I do get all of the points you're making, and I've said before, and I, why I didn't get on with the book so well, was that there is a blizzard of characters, and you don't really get to invest in any of them, to, and therefore sometimes you don't care enough about them. But if you text, I find that if you take a step back from that, really the book is a, a, a secular allegory for the Bible in many respects. Yeah. And uh, about g- goodness knows we need another one of well, those. Well, goodness <laughs> knows we need another one of those. But if you take, if, and as, as I did when I'd stu- stood back a bit and I, I, as I say I do stress I didn't actually get on with the book as well as I thought I would but sticking back I, when I watched this as a piece of filmmaking I thought if you're going to make this film you couldn't make it better than this and to, the visualisation of, of, of the world of the landscape fantastic the characters get lost that is true but because it's an allegory a, cri- a sort of secular allegory um, of how one becomes Messiah in a secular environment, um, you don't really... Characterisation in that context becomes somewhat secondary. So I think it's really about the flow of the story and, and mm-hmm. his journey. However, and I'll stress it again, if you don't buy into that premise, and I can fully expect, expect where people won't, you're not going to buy into this movie. Because, um, because for all the reasons you've just said. I think one of the... I guess we probably have to, to wrap up, yeah. but... Um, is to say that the, the first film had a real sense of dread to it. Um, Stellan Skarsgård plays quite a significant role in the first film. Mm. This is really creepy. I don't know. I don't know what he is. He's a he's a bad guy. <laughs> he's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- this film it doesn't quite have that same sense of dread. It's more of a spectacle cinema. So I wonder whether that's probably the only criticism that if you really like that about the first film, you might not get on mm. with it mm. so mm. much this time. But otherwise, I did think it was. I enjoyed it perfectly cool. fine. <laughs> Crowd-pleasing spectacle. Crowd-pleasing caval- spectacle. Cavalcade of A- A-list actors. Exactly. Um, it's a Sophia 12A and it's playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. So next up we've got Amazon Prime's newest rom-com offering Five Blind Dates in which a woman is told by a fortune teller that she will meet her soulmate on one of the next five dates she goes on. Here's a trailer. This is a story about me, Leo, and G. How is the shop? doing well. It is. It seems like you are making something of yourself. In my zone now. It's a Chinese tradition to have your fortune told before big events. I feel like a wedding. I feel like gold. We can celebrate Lee's success as well. I'm in control. Five dates. <gasps> Jesus has answered my prayers. So when I heard the synopsis of this, it put me in mind of one of my favourite mathematical paradoxes, which is of a man in jail who's told by a judge that he'll be executed on one of the next five days and it will be a surprise when it comes. The man then logically deduces that he can't be executed on a Friday because then he would know at the end of Thursday what was coming and it wouldn't be a surprise. And then he repeats this analysis and decides he's not going to be executed at all but then he's executed on Tuesday and is very surprised. So with this premise of being told that you will meet your soul date on one of your next five dates, if she meets her soulmate on date two, does she still need to fulfill the remaining three dates? And if she hasn't met her soulmate on dates one, two, three, and four, does that mean soulmate uh, date number five is a sure thing? Luke, help me out here. Am I overthinking this? I, I think that's a wonderful analogy to what's going on here because because on the one hand it is both not no one is at all surprised by anything that happens in this film um but also in the the you know the paradox there is a is an analysis of a, a theory and that's kind of what's happening here in five blind dates this isn't really a film about who she ends up getting with um, so there is no soulmate at the end of this all 
Oh, well, I, I wouldn't wish to... Uh, oh, no to, spoilers, you know, it of course. Is, I mean, no spoilers, but it is a rom-com. <laughs> um, but it, it's more about an exploration of the idea of romance, not, not to sort of build this film up into too much, but um, the, it takes quite a long time to get into the, the premise of this film, and I think that's where it will lose some people. But once we actually get going, what we end up having is five members of um, Leah's friends and family all want to set her up with a blind date and each one that they choose is sort of like a representation of what they want in a partner or what they they want from her so for example the first date that she goes on is set up by her dad who's this wealthy businessman slash sort of playboy who wants who wants the you know the safe wife um, who just sort of be a figure. So it's sort of, it would be a loveless relationship, but one that's very safe, and that's sort of, as a representation of what her dad wants. And by the way, that that guy is called Apollo Wang. <laughs> and he's he's the best thing in this film. He's brilliant. Um, but then you have like the mother who sets her up with um, the boy who still lives at home, who's very safe and very nice. And it's fun to see a a film like that. It has things to say beyond who does she have chemistry with um and that kind of touched the other thing that i quite like about this film is it's an australian film that's about asian immigrants in australia and i always like it when a film shows me a world that i've not seen before i mean it's not a particularly you know deep look at this you know it's a very hallmarky kind of thing but it's a it's a fun and interesting world and i did not hate this film well you might be alone on that because this is currently sitting at 4.9 out of 10 on IMDb. So, Nick, I'll come to you next. Mm. In my opinion, rom-coms are perhaps one of the most formulaic genres of films, but that is kind of the point. Did this at least give you the constituent parts you're looking for in a rom-com? Yeah, um, and the simple answer is yes. It doesn't deserve 4.9 at all. Um, and it is an interesting look at your Australian-Chinese diaspora, which is right now. But in answer to your question specifically, um, it reminded me of the blues, actually. A blues song, <clears throat> you know exactly where it's going and it's got all the right notes in all the right places. But what makes a great uh, blues or an interesting blues song is the, is the spaces in between those notes, the bits that you don't hear. And I felt that this film had that um, because for some of the reasons that Lucas just said as an in interesting look at, at, at who people choose for, for them. It's really funny. Um, it's got some, you know, lovely characterizations in it. I mean, it's, it's daft, okay? <laughs> and it's a rom-com, and it does follow the rom-com rules, like a blues song, very, uh, you know, to the letter. Um, in answer to your mathematical conundrum, uh, the actually date zero uh, is really, um, without giving too much away, <laughs> but it is rom-com land, so it's, it is signposted very early on what, how it's going to end up. But date zero actually ends up being date five, so really, um, the maths goes out the window, really, from 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 the start of the, the movie. It's good fun. I really, I don't know why it's been so um, um, ripped apart. Really, um, <clears throat> it's fun, and um, I can't really ask for much more of a rom com because you do know where it's going. Um, it's fun. I, I, I liked it. Yeah, you, honestly, you both sound a lot more positive on this than than I thought. Uh, so perhaps one to check out if you think the 4.9 on IMDb is is a little bit harsh. So if you would like to, Five Blind Dates is a certificate 12 and streaming on Amazon Prime. Now, just when they think Orlando blooms out, they drag him back in. Bottom right corner. Slow it all down, Savannah. See it. Say the word. You know what to do. 
survival. Survival? Big Cat just wanted us to pay a little visit. that you're in Big Cat's debt that you owe. I took a loan on my place. How much trouble are we in? Oh, I'll handle it. Red Right Hand tells the story of Cash, an ex-criminal who's forced to return to his old ways working for Big Cat, a grizzled drug lord played by... Is that Andy McDowell? I hadn't noticed. <laughs> Can Cash reclaim the family farm and rehabilitate his wayward brother with the help of a local preacher and a lot of gunfire? Matt, where does this fall on the mid-budget action movie range? Is it so bad? Is it so cheesy? Is it's good, or is it just a good film? Unfortunately for me, this this does fall into the the valley of two star mediocrity. It, <laughs> in my opinion, it was just competent enough uh, to bore me a bit. I did get distracted by my phone throughout. I've just seen a 5.3 out of 10 on IMDb, so it does seem like uh, most people agree with me. There was a lot to like about this film, but it just doesn't come together to create anything that you haven't really seen before. I always find that when I'm trying to pick out things I liked about a film, that's because the overall package really didn't work for me. So this film does have a very strong central performance by Orlando Bloom with some fantastic acting uh, accent work. It does have Andy McDowell as a sort of American vampire almost, as the ludicrously named Big Cat, head of the drug cartel that's operating out in the backwoods. Uh, and it does have a sort of reasonable supporting cast with Garrett Dillahunt and Brian Garrity as well. Uh, I liked the music, I liked some of the action scenes, I thought there was some nice tense standoffs, but overall it did just kind of feel like another crime thriller that we've seen before, and ultimately there are better things you can watch. I mean, there's always better things you can watch, but I think I was pleasantly surprised whenever this started, I, I thought, oh god, here we go, it's another guy has to protect the farm. I thought that was it was it's almost two hours, and I was like, "Is that going to be the entire film?" But they they it turns into more kind of a saga where he's like, he's kind of put on a quest uh, to uh, he has to complete three more jobs for the big boss before they can before they can get the farm back, and then of course Andy McDowell, who's genuinely <laughs> so there's a torture scene in this film that is just really hard to watch. Yeah, very wince-inducing. Oh, my God. Um, and she's actually... I'm never, I'm never usually a huge fan of Maddie McDowell, but she, <laughs> she's found her niche, and I hope she plays nothing but this character going <laughs> forward. Um, I thought Orlando Bloom carried the film really well. I thought it was kind of a transformative performance for him. Um, and I like that it, it goes in an unexpected direction. You know how it's going to end. It's going to end with a shootout, but <laughs> I enjoyed just how brutal and visceral and kind of dynamic the action was. Um did you did you find the action like if you if you look if you're looking at this for just a pure action film do you think there was enough here to entertain the average viewer? I don't think so. I mean, I, I am a fan of of low budget action films, as, as my love of Scott Adkins will attest. And I thought the the actual action scenes here were were quite forgettable and, and mediocre. It was the, the bits between the action that that impressed me more than the action scenes themselves. Because uh, as I say, there were some some great individual scenes and that torture scene that you mentioned will be hard viewing for anyone who possesses knees uh, <laughs> without wanting to give too much away I, I really liked the soundtrack there's some nice sort of incidental music there's some quite nice uh, drone shots like sort of giving you a sense of the setting and the place but uh, overall it just didn't really come together for me as anything more than a sort of two-star crime movie with some good performances 
Well, you can make up your own mind. Um, it's readily available on Sky and now cinema. It doesn't appear to have a rating by the BBFC, or at least <laughs> I couldn't find one. Um, but it's definitely not one for the kids, I'd say. Uh, next up, we have Perfect Days, which is the latest film from Wim Wenders about a man called Hirayama who cleans public toilets in Tokyo, living his life in simplicity and daily tranquility. Here's a trailer. Just a perfect day. Drink sangria in the park, and then later, when it gets dark, we go home. Kondo wa kondo. Ima wa ima. So, Lorcan, I'll come to you first. In a fortnight in which we have the release of one of the biggest sci-fi movies of the decade. Why should people care about a man cleaning some toilets? Uh, well, why shouldn't they, as this film very rightly uh, points out? I think, for me, uh, Wim Wenders is kind of a weird one for me. I kind of, similar with Jim Jarmusch, where I either really get on with his films or I, I just find them super boring. And I thought this was going to be one of the boring ones for me, but I just loved... It's very intricate and meticulous. I love the methodology of the film. Uh, there's a lot of very clever things that happen in the film. Contrast it with something like um, Chloe Zhao's films, where the writer or Nomadland, which turn my stomach when I watch them. This film's much more about less exploiting, you know, people who are in an unfortunate situation and just learning to appreciate the things you have. But saying that there are elements to the film that will, on rewatching, uh, be more pause for thought. I think. Hmm, okay. So uh, Nick, I'll come to you next. So Perfect Days was shot in Japan over a period of 17 days. How does a German director like Wim Wenders capture Japanese culture? Well, <clears throat> very well, I think. To, to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea how this film came about or why Wim <laughs> Wenders ended up making a film which is essentially a Japanese movie. Um, and I would love to be uh, be a contrarian here and say this is one of Wim Wenders' worst films, but it really isn't. Um, uh, Lorcan's spot on. It's it's a beautiful tone piece, really, and and I think it can be interpreted in many different ways. I think Lorcan's spot on. I think r- watching it again, you will take away much more for pause for thought. And the first viewing, you are. <laughs> Just sort of, you come along on the journey with um, with um, uh, Hiriyama, who's played by um, Koju Yakashu, um, brilliantly. I should I do think we should stress the acting. His acting performance in this is is superb, and it's superb for a number of reasons. But primarily, I think, and I don't want to say too, uh, too much, but I think Vim Vendors is trying to explore the yin and yang of life. In in other to be happy, um, one needs to experience some sadness and some grief. Now I know this is explicit throughout the film, but it is expressed through the performance of Hiriyama. Uh, and, and his character and there's a scene at the very end which I don't want to go into too much because it is literally the final scene of the movie where but essentially you're looking at his face and you're working out you're seeing happiness and sadness at the same time and I think that's uh, uh, very much where the film is area it's trying to explore it talks about a man in the shadows but there's a lot of light it's lit beautifully um, we see very surprisingly this film reminded me of Wally. 
Um, the first 20 minutes of the film, we are following his life, a bit similar to Wally, <laughs> but his routine and what he does. Um, and it's beautifully observed, beautifully done. And then slowly, certain small, smallish events happen. I, I don't want to say too much, but um, challenge some of our... and give a little glimpse into our, um, our, the backstory of, of, the, of the main guy. And, and it's all done in, so subtly and so beautifully, this tone piece that we refer to, that you get that the, the, the sense... Of the hints of things behind and what's going on and and as i say it explores that that the duality of 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 the simplicity enjoying the simple things and being happy with life but also recognizing to recognize and to be happy and to see those wonderful small things you have to had to experience some dark and i don't think the film is called perfect days by mistake um well the song perfect days lou reed is is used that's a sad song um it's about heroin um and heroin addiction and yet it's a joyful uplifting song in its own way and i don't think that's a mistake by vim to use that song i will just say kind of to, to kind of, um that the that it's a very episodic thing episodic mm. film i think it takes place over several days and each day is kind of its own episode mm. so if you're one of those people who aren't super fond of episodic films each episode is really short so if you don't like an episode just wait five minutes it'll be on the next one <laughs> and it goes by very quickly yeah well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And if you're interested in tre- checking out Perfect Days, which I believe was originally titled Toilet Talk or, or something, uh, which <laughs> I think is for, for the best that they changed it, yeah. then uh, it's Certificate PG and currently showing at the Arts Picture House. Uh, just some time before the break to talk about Netflix's sci-fi sequel, Codate Part 2. <laughs> You said you owed me for the time I did inside. I have to get someone out of the city tonight. A friend. Will you do that for me? Or even? I'll help you. My quick question first. What is it about me that you would choose this pathetic life? Superheroes and technology come to clash in this action drama starring TV heartthrob Stevie and Rubble Amel, uh, or Amel, I'm not entirely sure. When a teenage girl with abnormal abilities witnesses the murder of her brother, she looks to the criminal underworld to take on a corporate police force. Uh, Matt, I'll come to you first. Um, what can we expect from the Code 8 universe now? So, I, I believe this started out as a, a short movie on YouTube in 2016, I believe, before that sort of blew up and was made into a feature film in 2019, and now we've got Code 8 Part 2 in 2024. And I, I remember watching the first Code 8 and thinking, yeah, this is this is perfectly fine, and then forgetting all about it, and then suddenly here we have Code 8 Part 2. I don't think you necessarily need to have seen the first one um, in order to enjoy this. It is just quite a quite a well-done slice of low-budget sci-fi superheroes, sort of uh, quite an unusual setting, the kind of mix of people with abnormal superpowered abilities uh, up against sort of high-technology sci-fi cyborgs and robot dogs. It did kind of amuse me to, to sort of see that when it really comes down to it, most superpowers are inferior to a gun. It's like, oh, you can set your hands on fire, gun beats you. You can shoot electricity, gun. You can camouflage into the wall, gun. Uh, so... That did did kind of amuse me, um, but not much else in the film did. I think my big problem with it is it is all very serious and very. I'm not saying every superhero film has to be a Marvel style quip fest, but I was getting quite glum by the end of it. It's not necessarily bad. I just think that the superhero genre is very overstuffed, and, and we've seen better than this. 
Nick, mm. I feel like for something like this, you have to put a lot of effort into the world building for like a kind of a smaller budget. You have to you have to put in your effort into the characters and world building for something like this to work. Does it does it work for you? Um, unfortunately, no, uh, it didn't. I, I think actually Matt summed it up very well. It's not terrible, but I. <laughs> I think the worst thing I can say about this film is that I was bored. Uh, I found it... Um, I, I referred to um, uh, blues songs earlier. This is the blues, uh, blues song without the, the notes in between. It just <laughs> plods along. And um, I didn't... Uh, I, I don't mind low budget. And uh, you're right, Lorcan. You, you have to invest in your characters and your building of characters. I was going to ask Matt, well, does it make a difference? Because I hadn't seen part one. Well, I had seen part one, but <laughs> forgot about it because it was also quite forgettable as right. as I think this will be well I'm afraid I yeah I, I don't think I'll particularly be investing in part, part one at, at this point it, it isn't terrible the robot dogs were quite cool um, <laughs> uh, and uh, the, and it reminded me of um, you know a lot of superheroes came to mind that series on the telly mm. I don't, but it was uh, um, definitely not as engaging as that and um, there was an element to the equaliser I thought towards the end mm. where um, we uh, we sort of got this folk hero uh, that's uh, going to take on the, on the bad guys but I'm afraid I, I was bored and I that's a bit of a damning thing to say about a film if I'm honest I don't mind bad films as long as they're fun um, I just found this boring fair dues well potentially part three will come no matter what we say here <laughs> in the studio true. so uh, Code 8 part 2 is a certificate 12A and that's streaming on Netflix Cambridge 105 Radio have you ever thought about volunteering here at Cambridge 105 Radio I'm Lucy Malazzo, and five years ago, I did just that. I wanted to learn about radio and kind of thought I could help out behind the scenes. Since then, I've read the news, have woken up to a very early alarm for Cambridge breakfast and recorded promos like this one. Right now, Cambridge 105 Radio is looking for new volunteers to join the team. And if you fancy getting involved, visit cambridge105.co.uk slash volunteer. In need of legal advice you can trust, Woodfine Solicitors offers a range of expert and award-winning legal services, whatever your problem. It's not all happy ever after for couples. Every family goes through difficult times, but Woodfine Solicitors can help you face those challenges, deal with personal crises, and get you back on track. We're upfront and transparent about our costs. Find out more at woodfines.co.uk and arrange a no-obligation chat. Woodfines. Cutting through the red tape. Cambridge 105 Radio. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and this is the Cambridge Film Show, about halfway through our fortnightly roundup of what is and maybe isn't worth catching this weekend on cinemas and on streaming. Uh, I'm Lorcan, and hosting with me today is Matt Taylor, along with reviewers Luke, Stu, and Nick. Now, we're moving to Littlehampton for some colourful language. The mystery of the obscene Littlehampton letter is causing widespread distress across the nation. Holy heavens. Carry on. Dear Edith, you... In the end, I think it's just jealousy. Do you feel certain that Rose Gooding's guilty? I can't see why they think it's me. Some of the verge of making history here. I was a bit roisterous once or twice. It's time you owned up to these letters. 
when the citizens of an English seaside town start receiving profanity-laden, wicked little letters, particularly conservative, conservative local Edith, played by Levy Coleman, an Irish immigrant Rose, played by Jesse Buckley, is promptly imprisoned. But the townswomen suspect something is amiss and decide to investigate further. Stu, is there more to this film than just funny words? I think um, obviously the, the, it leads with a lot of the trailers and a lot of the promotional work around this have centred around the colourful language that goes throughout this film, um, particularly with little snippets on social media of Olivia Colman blurting out her favourite profanities uh, on the red carpet just for just for a, a giggle. Um, but it's got a lot more to it than just swearing. It's actually a really good story. It's based on um, a series of sort of sort of truish events. Truish, yeah. Yeah, truish. <laughs> Heav- heavily embellished <laughs> um, for dramatic effect. But it's 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 very entertaining. It it's it's it comes at a time when uh women in particular in like it's sort of post World War One Britain don't have much of a voice. We're talking a lot about the suffragette movements, we're talking about, you know, women knowing their place and women speaking up. Um and they really speak up in this, and 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 I think it, it just um, it it lends itself to the frustration of the women of the era that it comes out in quite such profane effect. <laughs> um, Luke, you've seen this as well. Uh, when I I watched the trailer for this in the cinema, and the audience when I watched it with it, it certainly got a reaction out of them. They seemed buzz. Can does it sustain that kind of buzz for a feature length? Oh, absolutely. I think. This film has been advertised very heavily on a, a radio station that I won't name, but <laughs> has a, an older audience, I think. And I was in a screening full of people older than myself, which is most people. Um, and they absolutely ate this up. Like, there's there's a sense to it, you know, that there's a generation of people who watch films that has much worse dialogue than this constantly. And worse, worse as in... We, we review most of them on the show. <laughs> Whereas I, I think the, the primary audience for this film is not going to see... They're not going to be quite so familiar with quite such flowery language. <laughs> and consistently throughout the film, it was getting reactions. It, the joke didn't get old for them. <laughs> um, it didn't get old for me either. I mean, this is it's a really odd film. So, it, you know, we've talked about how it's a true story and so it begins with this title card that says this story is more true than you might think (laughs) it's not that (laughs) bizarre a story it's a pretty grounded story and i think that's actually for for better and for worse for the film because it's it's a rather small narrative and Mm. it stays quite small it stays mostly on olivia coleman and jesse buckley and then it broadens up a little bit with the female police officer they get they get a series of good gags about how she has to consistently refer to herself as a also a woman police officer um with really fun supporting roles so that is anjana vasson who i've not seen in anything before she she really shines in this and then she works with uh, lolly adafopi who is sort of a really growing star in british comedy and joanna scanlon who's a really established star there they're a lot of fun but the actual true nature of this story actually in reality, this became a quite large issue that got national attention mm. and it was the government was involved and you're expecting the story to sort of unfurl into something much Expanded. larger. Yeah. But it, it doesn't really. It stays very small. And I think if you if that's what you're 
if you enjoy that, then I think you'll appreciate it. I think, for me, I found it a bit restrictive, um, that it becomes... A, they have to rely more on contrivances to keep the narrative going into the final act. And the final set piece is so ridiculously I was sort of rolling my eyes a little bit at the end thinking this absolutely is not more true than <laughs> I than I believed it would be oh that seems like some good fun um Matt uh, how did you find that in particular how do you from the trailer I got that uh Olivia Coleman and Jessica Butley's very dubious Galway by way of uh Yorkshire <laughs> accent um do they work as enemies if that's the kind of roles that they play with each other yeah, they're sort of friends to enemies, back to friends again, and sort of tapping into the idea that often the people that you might hate the most are the people that you've been friendly with and had a falling out with. So yeah, those performances are incredibly strong, as is uh, Timothy Spall as uh, Olivia Coleman's character's father, who is in many ways the, the true sort of patriarchal villain of the piece in terms of... Uh, forcing these sexist ideas and his own ideas of how a woman should behave onto everyone around him. I enjoyed this film a lot, but then I find swearing inherently funny. I did actually think the swearing was quite gratuitous because a lot of the humour was just a, a sort of very talented actor deadpanning some horrible swear words. And and I, I agree with Luke, that didn't actually get old for me, but it didn't necessarily, it wasn't doing anything particularly clever other than just having them read out some swear words. Now, an aspect of this film that I really enjoyed was the look at the kind of British justice system because we're just coming off the post office scandal, which is another huge miscarriage of justice. And I've just read the book, The, the Secret Barrister, which is, explains how British justice works. But Jessica Buckley's character is accused of sending these letters and then just goes straight to jail or remand, as it's known, awaiting trial and is told, well, you've got to pay £3 to get out. Well, I don't have £3. Well, I guess you're just going to jail then. And this is a system which still exists in Britain today. If you get arrested and you can't pay the bail, you are going to sit in jail even if you haven't been convicted of anything. So just being reminded that these injustices still exist today was something that I enjoyed a great deal. So, yeah, I think a lot of people would get a lot out of this film. Although the sexism, I think, was quite... Uh, one note it was like every i think every male character in this film is a a thunderous idiot which <laughs> I'm, I'm sure will irritate certain certain sectors uh, i thought it was quite interesting as well that we talked about how um it seemed like a fairly insular storyline and quite small i think that's it, it i think that's quite it's very british particularly of its era because you've got this is a time before mass media it is largely small uh, circulation newspapers it is village gossip and I think that really sort of comes across really well in that as well and as as for the um, the use of colourful language in the film <laughs> particularly from Olivia Coleman's sort of uptight character I think it, it, it the way that the, part of the humour is in the fact that how she uses the language it's, it's, it's not used with any elegance it's like she's just discovered all of this vulgarity and there's an innocence behind it as well which I think lends to the humour and, um, and, and and again I think it, it, us all collectively being British naughty words are funny <laughs> it's almost as if she's been repressed for so long that suddenly having a release valve just lets all of this profanity fly out mm. like a, a pressurised sort of jet of steam yeah well, we've got Dune as a big spectacle piece to watch with crowds, and it sounds like we've got a nice uh, kind of local comedy to also watch with crowds. Wicked Little Letters is as a certificate 15, and it's playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. 
So next up, we've got Spaceman, which is uh, Adam Sandler's latest uh, offering from his his collaboration with Netflix, in which he plays an astronaut who is half a year into his solo mission on the edge of our solar system. Concerned with the state of his life back on Earth, he is helped by an ancient creature he discovers in the bowels of his ship. Here's a trailer. On behalf of the Eurospace program, 189 days into your solo journey. Commander Prohatska, how are you feeling? What I'm doing is for everyone back home, and that makes me very proud. And your wife, Lenka, of course. I'm sure she's looking forward to having your home safe and sound. He's not doing well. He misses his wife. And he shouldn't have left. Adam Sandler is perhaps one of the most divisive actors out there, especially as a result of his recent collaborations with Netflix. Although my opinion is, don't hate the player, hate the game. If he can get paid all this money to go on holiday with his friends, power to him. Stu, how does this compare to his other Netflix originals? I think it's um, it's 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 really surprising as a film. It's very, very different to Adam, Adam Sandler's previous sort of cinematic vehicles because Adam Sandler plays Adam Sandler in Adam Sandler movies. I think that's that's pretty true universally. He plays loudmouth, obnoxious, funny people, and and this this film couldn't be any further from that. It's it's it is a surprisingly sensitive adaptation of a 2017 Czech novel called uh, was it it's Bohemian Spaceman Bohemia or Bohemian Spaceman sorry um, but it's um, it, it's it's really surprising just to see him not playing this sort of laugh a minute character it's it's actually quite sensitive it's dealing with some sort of fairly large issues you know being a sort of repressed sort of male feelings again like we talked about it a bit last week on, on, on the last show um and it really really just sort of again i only i watched this this morning on netflix <laughs> and i'm still processing a lot of the feelings and it, it just really sort of surprised me how diverse it was for him as an actor it just sort of pretty went away from his usual stuff okay well because some of the reason why people are so divided on Adam sandler is that he has on few occasions shown he is capable of sensitive dramatic roles such as punch drunk love or uh, rain over me or even uncut gems and then when he goes back to the sort of silly voice funny man it just seems so lazy uh, in comparison okay so next question uh, i was doing a bit of reading about this film and i saw that because of mixed reactions in test screenings uh, it's actually been in post-production for three years oh, wow. uh, did you notice evidence of a troubled production in the final product honestly no um i thought it was a really well put together uh, bit of uh, cinematography i mean it, it for what I'm assuming what kind of been a very large budget film, I thought a lot of the practical effects were really good. So I'm always really impressed when you see all these films set in space where people are floating around in zero-G. 
I, I, that always surprised me. You, you never see any wires. You never see anyone sort of dangling. It's 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 all it's really well put together. Um, and so out outside of the spacecraft, we find a lot of other visual effects as well. So obviously we've got the large CGI backdrop of space, which is quite dazzling and quite beautiful because one of the core parts of it is that he's going out to visit this vast sort of nebula which it is supposed to be like the the answer to life to universe and everything it's going to be from the gases from the dawn of the universe um and, and again at the same time there are some really sort of um interesting visual cues that were very interstellary as well um it seems to have borrowed a lot of sort of modern sort of space uh imagery for some of its flashbacks to earth as well and and, and those are sort of mixed with um flashbacks to earth also a bit of psychic interference from his alien companion so are these flashbacks where we get to see sort of kerry mulligan paul dano etc because adam sandler's top billing but having a look at the cast there's also quite a few other big names but do we only get to see them in sort of brief flashback is this really just an adam sandler in space vehicle so there's a lot of flashbacks to kerry mulligan um in in this who plays his wife lenka um and she's basically sort of left to hold herself together in his absence on this long space mission um and i I think she's not on screen for a lot of the time but when she is i think she really sort of delivers the sort of the feelings around sort of being uh uh, the wife stranded and 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 left to sort of deal with the sort of the emotional fallout and the emotional void um of the of the sort of a strange husband off out for work in space um paul dano you don't see at all um he is a voice actor in this he voices uh the little alien called heinous who's sort of a, a spider-like creature <laughs> the um the cgi for for that particular character it's a little questionable i think it's sort of compared to some of the other pretty images and the, and the good quality cgi backdrops i think it really sort of falls a bit short so i, I always personally struggle when you've got a live action inter- character interacting with the cgi one are you saying that that this film doesn't really carry that off do you believe their relationship uh, well the, the questionable quality of the character cgi aside um i think that actually it, it actually lends itself quite well the react the, the sort of um interactions between adam sandler in person and paul dano's cgi character actually seem to work quite well mm. partly because in the narrative i think heinous doesn't like to be touched which gives a excuse, very convenient very convenient it gives him a some sort of reason to be distant but towards the end of the film there is a moment of contact which is actually quite mm. sweet and actually it doesn't look as jarring as you might imagine it would have done in the build-up so i think that sort of plays quite well as as, as, as well. Um, Paul Dano, um, of course, is voice actor for this character, and I think he does a very sort of, quite a touching uh, portrayal as well for Adam Sandler's alien friend. <laughs> okay, so not Adam Sandler's usual oeuvre, but Spaceman can be seen on Netflix, uh, where it's streaming with a certificate of 15. Uh, getting a little more grounded now, though only slightly. Um, we're going to skip the trailer for this, um, uh, the bricklayer. But um, humble bricklayer Aaron Eckhart is called back into his classified role as a CIA, CIA superstar when an old acquaintance resurfaces, causing havoc for the agency. Joining forces by the book with by the book uh, Kate, played by Nina Dobrev, they travel the world hunting this relentless uh, foe named Radek. Um, Matt, you've seen this one. Um, I kind I. Uh, 
how do I how do I put it? A, a relatable everyman uh, who's uh, really a, a tough edged guy underneath, uh, whose job title is in the name of the film. Was Jason Statham just not available this week? <laughs> well, th- this is just a, a, the latest in a series of trends of sort of upper middle aged men deciding they want to be action heroes. I believe Aaron Eckhart has four recent IMDb credits in which he plays some variation of CIA agent. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he's not a career long bricklayer in this. Directed by Rennie Harlan, who, you know, his best days are behind him, but I thought did bring a certain 90s charm to this. This is this has crashed through the mediocre two star valley into one star so bad it's good territory uh, for me personally. So I was laughing out loud frequently. Uh, the action scenes aren't too bad. I mean, if Keanu Reeves is is John Wick, then Aaron Eckhart might be John Brick. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to do that. Uh, it, it doesn't quite live up to the to the John Wick movies. But I thought the choreography was not bad. I I certainly like this a lot more than Red Right Hand, which was the other Sky original I sat through this week. I agree. The first set piece uh, on the roof with like this big neon sign in the background that was quite cool. And he he does all his brick stuff. <laughs> I think he uses a trowel after that one scene. He uses a trowel once. I don't think he hits anyone with a brick. Unless I think he throws a brick in that opening scene. Oh, I see. I I must have missed that one. <laughs> um, well, the bricklayer is certificate fifteen, and you can find it on Sky and Now Cinema. <laughs> And uh, finally for this week, we have Mia Culpa, which is the latest offering from from prolific director Tyler Perry, in which an ambitious criminal defense attorney that, in her aspiration to be named partner, takes on the case of an artist accused of murdering his girlfriend. Mr. Malloy, this is Mia Harper. I'd like to meet with you to discuss your case. What the prosecution has is pretty damning. I know that you have an eye for details, so don't leave anything out. She was a goddess. One day I came back and she was gone. So you believe this guy? Desire, why did you do it? I've never seen anything like it. You always go with your gut. Please, this is my life and they're trying to ruin me. You're repping Zaire Malloy. So, Nick, I looked up the dictionary definition of mea culpa and found that it means a formal acknowledgement of personal fault or error. My question is, is director Tyler Perry trying to tell us something? Yes, um, this entire movie, I think, could be described as mea culpa, not just by title, but by uh, definition. Um, it's a retro 90s erotic crime noir of... Um, of uh, of, of the ilk, you know, going back to sort of, um, oh, I've forgotten the names of the films now, but you know the sort of thing from the early 90s where you've got uh, people uh, using uh, food to smother themselves and then kill them and, and sort of daft things of that nature. This film has none of that. It's um, really devoid of anything of much interest, I'm afraid to say. It's tedious, mawkish, obvious, um, too dark. I can't see what's going on half the time. Um, a, 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 an attorney has to defend a man who's been accused of killing his girlfriend. Um, and, and we should point out at this point that the attorney's name is Mia. Uh, so the attorney, paid by Kelly Rowland. What's she doing in this? I've no idea. <laughs> Kelly Rowland's great. I love Kelly Rowland. But um, uh, she plays an attorney who's uh, to, to defend this um, very wealthy artist who's um, uh, young um, and very uh, up and coming and successful. And um, and then um, uh, and a 
a, a, a relationship forms between the two of them and um, then things begin to unfold and bad things start to happen and then did he do it, didn't he do it, questions arise. And do you care? Not really because it's fairly obvious from the start where the twists are coming. <laughs> the last 20 minutes has a, um, some limited suspense but up until that point I would say the first 90 minutes um, is, is it's just dull, it just plods along at this sort of mawkish higher pace. It's directed, written and produced by Tyler Perry and, and I think that tells you something. I looked Tyler Perry up, he's <laughs> worth a billion dollars. Well, his movies and, are very popular. I mean, you know, and he's and you guys were telling me, he's what's his character that he does in the States? Medea, I believe. Medea, so he's very, very sort of Mrs. Brown's boy for, for America type, type <laughs> thing. And he's obviously um, very, very successful. He needed to produce this movie and then stand back and let someone else write it and direct it. And it may have had some success. It, it does, um, it is stylish. They wear some fine clothes and, and it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite slick in its appearance. But I mean, I, I didn't like Code 8 very much. I said it was boring, but I didn't mind Code 8. I, I, it wasn't brilliant. This is just dull, and I really, really do advise anyone listening to this to not bother. I'm sorry. Well, I guess there's not really any more to say on it, but if you if you want to prove Nick wrong, then Netflix is streaming Mia Culpa, and it is a certificate 18. So that is about all we've got time for for this week. I'm just very quickly going to run around everyone to get their film of the week. So let's start with Lorcan. What did you think? Um, I suspect that even if I had have seen everything this week, that Perfect Days, uh, Perfect Days would have been my favorite. I just love that film quite a lot. Okay, Luke, how about you? June, just about. <laughs> and Nick? I'm going to go Perfect Days because it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And Stu, you've only seen the one, so... Uh, I saw two. I saw, oh. I saw Space Man, Wicked Little Letters. Oh, but, uh, Wicked Little Letters, I'd say, is definitely the winner um, just for, for, for the laughs. Oh, fantastic. And that just about... Uh, leads us to the end please do tune in in two weeks time when we're going to be looking at the latest movie from the Coen Brothers which is a self-proclaimed lesbian road comedy known as Drive Away Dolls till then it's goodbye from our reviewers and goodbye from Lorcan and I see you (laughs) have a great weekend and don't forget to catch the Oscars next Sunday 